Okay, and we are recording. Uh, my name is Jeff Stone. I'm a senior's real estate specialist with Douglas Elliman in Manhasset and Port Washington. And I am doing this uh, weekly, bi-weekly bi uh, Zoom discussion on uh, professionals that service the 50 and over industry here, uh, folks. Uh, last time we had a senior's move specialist. Uh, before that was uh, myself as a senior's real estate specialist, but uh, I think uh, uh, I'd like to get Roseanne Farrell on again and uh, get her take on this industry because she's the one who taught me. And, uh, uh, but in any case, this time out, we have a very special guest and I've had the pleasure of knowing Ann Margaret over the years. And uh, by the way, you're handling my mother-in-law's estate. You handle my father-in-law's estate. And um, I also knew you were in, when you're in uh, politics a long, long time ago. Well, yeah. <laughs> in any case, so with us today is Ann Margaret Carosa. Uh, and uh, she is the author of Love and Money, Protect Yourself from Angry Exes, Wacky Relatives, Con Otters, and Inner Demons. She's the on-air legal expert to Dr. Phil and other television programs. She previously served for 14 years as a New York State. Okay. And there goes my soda. So, a practicing asset protection and estate planning attorney, and Margaret has the highest possible rating uh, by the AV preeminent by Martindale Hubble. Okay, uh, welcome to the show, Ann Margaret. Thank you uh, so much for having me here. And although uh, we're a small group, I think it's very important, uh, sort of a complementary but interdisciplinary uh, group of us who um, are, are very well situated to help seniors and their families. You know, it, at this uh, present time, it, yes. it's such a, a period of stress and uh, upheaval for so many families in our area. So uh, I love the opportunity to strengthen bonds between us so that uh, we as a team can, can better assist folks. And, you know, as an aside, uh, I really try to focus on taking stress and fear uh, away from a lot of people to the greatest extent possible. And uh, I'll just throw it out there. I know we're all on mute, uh, but what do you think the number two fear, okay, that all adults have statistically. What is the number two fear? Jeff, you're unmuted. What do you think the number two fear might be? Uh, you know, I'm not sure. Could you just uh, repeat that again? I'm I'm yeah. sorry, but I spilled <laughs> my drink on my. Uh, you spilled the drink. You're trying to pull the broker back. <laughs> and I'm trying to get everything before it uh, ruins things. So this just adds to the show, right? <laughs> this was um, not a planned uh, thing here. Well, you know what? Then you can unmute other people who may have been listening. <laughs> um, so the question was, yeah. what, do, what do you think, and I guess we'll do number one and number two, what are the top two fears that people have? Well, Gary what, has an how answer. do you protect your money? No, 
survey says no. Okay. <laughs> uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make this interactive and okay. I'm going to un unmute everybody. Great. Uh, perhaps uh, someone has a uh, an answer that's better than mine. Uh, I there might have an answer. Yourself. Julie? Going into a nursing home. Okay. Gary, what was your answer? My response would be that um, they worry about how the familial relationships will carry on if their affairs are not in order. I, I, what I've read, it's a more generalized um, fear of aging. You know, we, we fear aging. And I think I've put a lot of thought into this over the decades. And I, I think it's, you know, we fear the unknown. Uh, we fear being at someone else's mercy. And, you know, maybe part of that, Julie, is, you know, a nursing home setting. And, you know, your phone must be ringing off the hook because I, I think you, you can't even mention nursing home without people going totally nuts. Um, and we've seen the worst possible scenario with nursing homes, and that is if you have an infection, it can spread like wildfire because, you know, you have caregivers going from one room into the next on and on and on. So I, I think, you know, um, the future is assisted living for sure. Um, home care, but I, I think all this whole fear thing, I think we can take the teeth out of it by educating ourselves as much as possible about the options for senior living. And even if we're not, you know, ready yet to sell, downsize, explore assisted living communities, I think we all feel better when we go through the exercise of educating ourselves. And that may be a tour uh, of a, a beautiful community such as the Bristol to um, really arm ourselves with information about the possibilities. And yes, that does circle into um, estate planning documents, which I think of as what can the Anne Margaret of today do and put in place that I'm shaping what my life is like later in the event that I don't have the ability, either physically or cognitively, if I don't have the ability to care for myself or make decisions for myself later. And I think this is um, of particular importance to women because as women, we're 80% um, likely to survive our husbands. And that's for marriages that go the distance, right? 42% of us will be divorced. Um, a, a number of us never get married in the first place. And uh, today's reality is not such that I can depend on my two kids to provide any level of care or, or time in the future. Uh, they could have the best of intentions, but they're dealing with their kids and their families and uh, two jobs and their own pressures. So I encourage women to 
embark upon this interdisciplinary planning process, gathering, interviewing um, a, a group of professionals. And that is a real estate specialist, that can be an assisted living expert, um, talking about downsizing and organizing the house, a financial advisor, a CPA, and an estate planning attorney. I think it's very important that you have some affection for these people. And I know that sounds silly coming from an attorney. We're programmed to hate attorneys. But I think uh, I encourage people to interview folks because if we don't have natural candidates in our lives to be you know, uh, the point person, the executor, my agent under the power of attorney, my healthcare advisor, uh, then we need to start recruiting outsiders. And we need to craft these advanced planning documents so that my outsider doesn't have the ability to harm me. So, you know, when we talk about is estate planning a do-it-yourself project? Um, and I think for many documents, we can do them on our own. And I say this publicly, uh, I, I think an attorney who charges for a healthcare proxy should be ashamed of themselves. You know, I was in the legislature when we did that law in the mid 90s, and the whole point of it was that it's idiot proof and we can do this document on our own. So I, I don't know where people get off charging for a healthcare proxy. You're welcome to uh, download the documents from my website, forward them to your clients. Uh, no room for error on that. Healthcare proxy determines who makes decisions for me in the event of a long-term illness. Then we have the living will, which in New York State, unlike Florida, the living will doesn't have a lot of teeth. The living will is more of uh, the subjective micromanager in me that comes out, where I talk about you know, my wish for aggressive pain management. So um, we also talk about, it is my wish, and I have this in my own living will, and I put a copy of my living will on my website, which is myelderlawattorney.com, no breaks. Um, the living will says, in the event that I need long-term care, I prefer that the care not be provided in a nursing home. I have that in my document. Uh, so you are free in New York State with a living will to shape the language to suit you uh, because this is not the document you're handing to the team at St. Francis. They only want to see the health care proxy. So the living will, to the extent that it's kind of subjective, I encourage people to put a post-it note on it and say for family use only. Okay, so those are the healthcare documents. Now we come to power of attorney. Who am I going to appoint during my life to be in charge of business transactions? And for every person, that's a different answer. And depending upon your cast of characters in your life, you may want to pick 
two B plus candidates and put them together, that they have to act together, and that will hopefully prevent one of them, you know, from doing something crazy. Or if in your situation, you, you don't have a natural candidate who uh, you can really trust 100%, or maybe you don't know them that well, now we want to take the teeth out of the power of attorney by saying, my agent can transact business for me, but cannot pull any assets out of my name. Okay, so it, it, we really want to customize that document. And unlike the healthcare advance directives, I strongly believe that the power of attorney should be done in consultation with an attorney. It's a little complicated. So that's you know just the, the foreshadowing. Those are the, the very basic documents that I think everyone should have. Um, and do you have any specific questions, Jeff? Well, I know, uh, does a, a living or revocable trust protect uh, one's assets in the event uh, long-term care is needed? Yeah, so when we talk about estate planning, um, we should be thinking about the word trust. You know, we're an incredibly litigious society. The um, long-term care programs that many seniors come to rely upon, such as the Medicaid program, we can expect that to buckle under uh, the weight of the state and federal budget deficits uh, in the not too distant future. So we wanna think about protecting our assets. And uh, we know that a trust is really the best thing we can do, uh, especially with real estate to protect it from any claims or liens. So when we hear the word trust, the topic that comes up for most people is a living or revocable trust. Susie Orman uh, sells them on her website and my mother and her friends before the pandemic used to go to seminars uh, given by my colleagues slash competitors because they got free refreshments and my mother is trying to look for uh, an eligible gentleman. So um, she figures if she goes to an estate planning seminar, there might be a guy with five bucks <laughs> who hopefully can drive, but that's a, a separate issue. <laughs> yeah. um, so what is this living or revocable trust? I can be my own trustee. I can put assets into it. I can take assets back out whenever I want. No one is the boss of me. So what did this revocable trust change to the extent that I can get my hot little hands on the assets whenever I want, so can the nursing home, right? Or so can uh, the mailman who breaks his head on my front steps and wants to sue me. A revocable or living trust does one thing only. It avoids probate, okay? It's a very good goal to avoid probate. Every one of us uh, here should have a good will, but the goal is for our family not to have to probate the will because best case scenario, that estate needs to be open for seven months to give any would-be creditors uh, a chance to come forward. So 
you have the will in place, but you, you want to avoid probate. And today we can do that on all of our assets by naming beneficiaries with the exception of the home. In order to avoid probate with the home or other real estate, we want to have it in a trust. If our only goal is to avoid probate, then a living or revocable trust will suffice. But if I have my asset in this revocable trust and I need, God forbid, nursing home care, do you think that the revocable trust provides any protection to my home that's in it? And the answer is no. To the extent that I can get my hot little hands on that asset whenever I want, so can my nursing home or other creditors or soon-to-be ex-husband. So we want to think in terms of having a stronger trust. The trust does not, however, have to be totally irrevocable. A totally irrevocable trust is never needed. You know, attorneys are reluctant to speak in absolutes, but I can tell you uh, in my 24 years of practice and 14 years as head of the trust committee in the New York State Legislature, uh, I can tell you a purely revocable trust would never be a good idea. So we can be somewhere in the middle, and this is ideally a hybrid trust that is strong enough to get this magical, it is still five years, this look back period going. So I create the trust, I name Jeff as my trustee because I know he is super honorable and trustworthy, but even so, within the language of this document, I am going to say he can't look right and he can't look left without my written permission. So I can't be my own trustee, but I can put, I, I don't wanna say a yes man, uh, but I can put someone in there with very narrowly tailored powers. Basically, his only role as my trustee would be when I sell my property. He can't sell it without me, but I do need my signature together with whoever my trustee is. They would sign if I want to sell it. And it's that one tiny difference that enables me to say to a hypothetical plaintiff or nursing home, I can say, look, I can't get at the asset acting alone. And that's true. If the trust is properly drafted, I need my wingman, my co-trustee to sign it and uh, sell it or pull it out and give it back to me. So, we retain within this trust the ability to change the trustee. What if I wanted to sell and Jeff said, you know what, I don't think it's a good idea. I think if you hold out next year, the market's going to be better. I can say, thank you for your service, Jeff. Gary is my new trustee. And we keep going down the line until I get someone who's willing to put their name down and we're able to sell. Um, so I need a trustee, but I don't necessarily need the one that I started with. 
Now, my beneficiaries are gonna be typically my kids. So let's say I have my three kids as the named beneficiaries. Within this trust, I wanna retain the ability to change the beneficiaries. Why do I want that? Uh, I'm, I love all of my kids equally. I'm never gonna wanna change the beneficiaries. But legally, because mom can still change her mind during her life, that means it was not a completed gift. Okay, so if one of my kids is about to go through his third divorce, his one third future interest in the trust is off limits to the extent that mom still holds the puppet strings and I can take him out if I want. So his soon to be ex-wife has no ability to put a lien on his interest. So it's very important that with any estate planning, especially a trust, that we retain all of the tools to be able to make changes um, that life curveballs could necessitate. Okay, uh, that's that's great. Uh, as opposed now to a revocable trust, uh, can that ever be changed? Well, um, even so, I guess the question should be protect one's uh, assets. Yeah. So a a revocable trust, you all get that that doesn't confer any protection, right? It's like water. If I can get my hands on it, so can my creditors. A purely irrevocable trust, you know, why would anyone do that? Why would anyone out there draft a purely irrevocable trust? And I tell the story in the book, I changed the guy's name, uh, but there was an attorney that I was social friends with a personal injury attorney who um, called me one Friday years back and said, I'm doing a trust for a client. Would you look at it? And I thought, gee, that's odd. Why is he doing a trust? Okay, happy to look at it. I'm a frustrated teacher at heart. So I take the document home that weekend and I'm marking it up, looking at it. And it's like the legal equivalent of a horror film because he is referring to sections of the Internal Revenue Code that were repealed in the late 70s. So it was clear that he got this document from some deceased attorney's files from the year of the flood and had his secretary cut and paste the names and the document looked fine and this guy looks terrific. You know, he looks like a, a TV lawyer on one of these nighttime shows. Uh, and I just, I didn't know what the heck to do. And it was like a Dear Abby moment. You know, I didn't want to tell him this is a piece of junk because that was going to be awkward. I really didn't know what to do. So Monday morning, back in the office, I called him and I said, you know, I, I really need some more information about your client to uh, evaluate this trust. So he proceeded to violate every stricture of attorney-client privilege, and he faxed to me, um, you know, this was before scanning and emailing, he faxed to me chapter and verse, all of his clients' information. I had account info, account numbers, social security numbers, 
I drafted a trust, sent him my trust. And I said to him, and forgive me, gentlemen, but I, I think this was like a gender thing. I said to him, I made a few changes, right? So here's, you know, the woman afraid of him being upset or sad or mad. Um, so he said to me, well, at least I was on the right track. I thought, in what universe are you not hearing what I'm telling you? Anyway, I then shredded all of his clients' private information. He had this trust and um, he then put a shingle out that he's doing elder law. And I just shuddered because, I mean, this was maybe one of 20 different trusts I would have used back at that time. And I thought it was like a broken clock, you know, twice a day it's correct. And maybe the next client who comes in uh, needs the provisions that happen to be in that trust. So, you know, it is the wild west out there. And I think new or inexperienced attorneys or attorneys, um, you know, kind of dabbling in a few different areas, maybe they don't know where on the spectrum they need to stop between being revocable and, you know, a, a straitjacket irrevocable. They don't know where does that five-year clock start ticking, okay? And it starts at the very nuanced point of me acting alone, not being able to pull my stuff out. Okay, so that, that's where the, the seesaw rests. And that's really not giving up any real power because again, I put a yes man in there, get my signature and he goes on his way. Often when people come into my Bayside office for an initial consultation, they bring with them documents they've already done. If we have a disaster trust document, that is purely irrevocable. Um, New York state law provides three ways for us to break in there with an ice pick. And uh, at the risk of putting you all to sleep, uh, I'll just say that one is decanting. We can create a better trust uh, and suck the brain matter out of the bad trust and put it in the new trust. Uh, we could do a judicial reformation. We want to try and avoid going to court if we can. Um, or if everyone is in agreement, New York State's Estates Powers and Trusts Law uh, provides an easier way for a family to get out of a trust that is too irrevocable. Now, a trust that is purely irrevocable, in addition to depriving the parent of power, you know, which is psychologically important. It's also gonna give the kids a tax problem because if I bought the property in 1978 for $50,000 and it's now worth $550,000, we know that if we make a simple gift um, of that property, they're gonna take it at a carryover basis for capital gains purposes and they're gonna end up having to pay a lot of taxes later. The same problem would occur with a purely irrevocable trust. Okay, so again, we never want that. We wanna be somewhere in the middle. 
this asset protection trust is going to avoid the beneficiaries later on having to pay capital gains taxes because they get that magical step up in basis upon mom's death and they don't have to pay any taxes. Okay, so on taxes now, when do the estate taxes kick in? The New York State threshold is $5,850,000, um, which means that a couple can shield over $11 million provided they have credit shelter trust planning in place because New York State does not have what's called portability. So a husband and wife can't automatically add up their $5.8 million credits. So if we have an individual who's over the 5.8 in New York, or if we have a couple who is over the 5.8, we need to do credit shelter trust planning to preserve the first credit uh, from being wasted. On the federal level, each estate tax credit is 11 million 500 and something uh, million. Uh, so many people don't have to worry about the federal estate tax right now. Um, but even if you are below the New York threshold, it's something you wanna keep your eye on because in January of this year, New York was looking at an unprecedented $6 billion budget deficit. Mm. So some changes were made to the budget. And uh, as many of you know, New York State increased the so-called look back period for community Medicaid, which used to be one month. It's now 2.5 years. Um, we can expect, I think on the state level, for this 5.8 estate tax credit to come back down so that um, more revenue can be collected because the gap at last count, it went from 6 billion in January to 20 billion in the beginning of April. And that was just at the very beginning of the pandemic. So I'm sure it's way beyond that now. And my former colleagues in Albany are, are gonna be scratching and clawing for every bit of revenue uh, they can put together. So we're, I, I believe, going to see the tax threshold come back down. So, you know, like so many elements of the estate planning, it really should necessitate a periodic sit down to see, um, you know, what needs to be fine tuned within our own estate plan. Uh -huh. Okay. Uh, if someone wanted to avoid state tax by putting uh, named beneficiaries on the account, uh, could that happen? That's an excellent question. Um, and, and I think, you know, so many people conflate probate with taxes. We can avoid probate by slapping beneficiaries on all of our assets, brokerage accounts, life insurance, do you think if I had a, a $20 million Morgan Stanley account with you as the beneficiary, Jeff, we would avoid probate, but do you think we're gonna avoid estate taxes? No, <laughs> if it were that easy to avoid estate taxes, 
the state and federal government wouldn't collect any, right? So it's one thing to avoid probate, and that's a good thing, uh, but that in and of itself does not avoid the taxes. So on the date of my death, they're going to count up everything I own together with death benefits on life insurance. You know, we're all told that life insurance is tax-free at the point of sale. It grows income tax-free. It is not a state tax-free. So if we have uh, a term policy with zero cash value and a $5 million death benefit, that $5 million is going to be part of the taxable estate unless we've done a life insurance trust to be the owner and get it out of the taxable estate. Okay. Uh, can someone avoid buying long-term care insurance and just rely solely on Medicaid planning? Well, in New York State, our Medicaid program is the best in the United States, okay? It's as rotten as all the nursing homes are, um, it is illegal for a nursing home to say, Anne, you're on Medicaid, so you have to wait for a bed. Um, you can have horrible nursing homes and better nursing homes, but within a given nursing home, there is absolutely no difference between the care that I receive when I'm on Medicaid or you receive because you're private pay. It's even Steven. We can certainly expect though, for New York State and the federal government to reduce the availability of the Medicaid program. Before the pandemic, Medicaid as a percentage of the New York State budget pie has grown higher than education as a percentage of the New York State budget. So cuts were coming before the sorry fiscal state that we're in, and we saw the first cut to the program by implementing the 2.5 year look back period prior to being eligible for community Medicaid. Uh, we expect on the federal level some of the uh, older ones amongst us remember when the look back used to be three years. It went to five years in 2006. There's a bill in Congress that would uh, increase that to seven years, and I fully expect uh, that to be implemented. So all of that being said, we should all still be cognizant of these uh, Medicaid rules, uh, but we should be educating ourselves about long-term care insurance options. Traditionally, uh, the reason why we didn't buy long-term care insurance was what? It's very expensive. Um, you know, high annual premiums. But the, the bigger turnoff, AARP did a study about 10 years ago, the bigger turnoff was that they're able to increase the premiums down the road, and if you pull out, you've lost all of the premiums that you paid the company. So in response to that, the company started offering new and better products. So I encourage all of us as consumers and as senior advisors here 
to educate ourselves so that we can uh, communicate intelligently to the folks we work with, uh, they have hybrid products that enable me to take a, a block of money, let's say 50,000 or 100,000, and I can buy what is really like a whole life insurance policy with a guaranteed death benefit to my named beneficiaries. But during my life, if I need long-term care help, the policy will allow me to draw on it for um, home care or for care in a, a rehab or a nursing facility. So that's a, a very attractive product for many people um, because it, it's still an asset if we're lucky enough not to need long-term care and we don't have to worry about uh, premiums increasing. Okay, uh, this is kind of a two-part question here. <clears throat> it's with the uh, adult children. Uh, if one of the adult uh, uh, kids needs more help than the others, uh, how can you provide for that child that has that special problem, whether it's a mental disability, a physical disability, uh, you know, how can you work that out? So, you know, this is an example of um, why I think it's so important for all of us to sensitively approach our estate planning. You know, back in the day, you did a simple will, Mary, Susie, and Johnny, they whacked up the estate, good luck, and, and that was that. Um, now, I, I think it at least merits uh, a discussion with the estate planning attorney you're working with. And this is why it's important uh, that you have a relationship with this person because my three kids could be as right as rain today and five years from now, you know, someone has a problem, a substance abuse issue, a developmental disability, he's on his fifth marriage, whatever it is that causes me to be up at night thinking, A, he needs more than his brother and sister, and B, whatever it is I give him is gonna be scattered to the four winds, you know, within a year of him receiving it. So we think in terms of, um, you know, the first issue, equality. I think it's very important within the will, even though my daughter needs a lot of help and my son is an anesthesiologist and he's doing just fine, the will is very psychological. Within the will, I think it's important to say Mary, Susie, and Johnny share equally. The, the will are our last uh, and final words to our family. But to the extent that Susie needs more help, maybe I go open a CD at the bank and she's the named beneficiary of that CD. Right, so it, it looks in the will like everything is equal, but uh, I'm finding a way to give her more health in, a, in such a vehicle that my name is on it during my life if I need to use that money, I can, but whatever is left in it, she gets off the top and we don't have to hurt other people's feelings. Um, if she's not in the position to receive a lump sum, um, maybe she's on a means-tested program. Maybe um, she is disabled or spends money like a drunken sailor. Then I say her one-third 
goes to her 5% a year for 20 years. So if my son, for example, is 57 years old and hasn't worked in five years and is on my couch watching TV all day, um, I might try within my estate plan to give him the retirement stream of income that he's not managed to do on his own, if that makes sense. So I, I think, it, you know, sometimes I, I feel like a therapist in that it's very important not to hold things back. If you can't stand your daughter-in-law, don't tell your son because that is not gonna get you anywhere, but it's important to tell me because we can kind of erect guardrails uh, that she's not involved with the assets to the greatest extent possible. Uh-huh. Along uh, the theme of uh, family, uh what if, say, someone owns the house, okay, uh, and uh, you're now living there with your second husband? You know, how do you protect him if you should die first? So blended families are, you know, really, really important to um, spend a little time planning for. Otherwise, there's going to be a three-ring circus on the other side. So when we have a second marriage do you know what the divorce rate is for second and subsequent marriages it's over 60 percent so it's 42 to 43 percent for a first marriage 60 percent and over for a second and subsequent marriage so i think it is crazy to enter into a second marriage without doing a prenuptial agreement very very important because absent the prenuptial agreement, every state in the United States gives very generous inheritance rights to a surviving spouse. So in years to come, uh, if I have a, a new younger husband and he hates my kids and my kids hate him and he's telling me, and this is how it goes, um, he's telling me, put my name on the house. You know, that's how they start the whole program. Put my name on the house. I'll make sure that your kids get it later. He's not going to make sure that the kids get it later. And I, I, sh <laughs> I should not put his name on my house. That's a recipe for disaster. But if the relationship is good and I don't want him to be homeless upon my death, then we need to come up with a compromise solution. So in the old days, the solution was um, let Fabio stay in the house for life and then give the rest upon his death you know, to my kids. That is a very big mistake. We don't want him to have it for life because he can move out of the state he could be living in Florida and renting out my house and getting the rental income. He could be in a nursing home himself one day and my kid's hands are tied because technically he's still alive. Or he could be shacking up with some other person in my house because he has it for life. And not letting my kids come in and you know get my knickknacks. She's probably put them all in hefty bags and uh, <laughs> called Gary to cart it away. <laughs> um, 
you know, so we want to think about nuancing this and we want to say Fabio has the right to occupy the property until the earlier of his death, his voluntary departure, his stay in a nursing facility for a period in excess of four months, his cohabitation with an unrelated person, you know, on and on and on, we customize it. Uh, but this really does a, a great job of preventing my kids, you know, from having their noses pressed against the windows of the house and not being able to come in because he's technically still alive. Uh, so we need a compromise solution. I, I just want to take, I, I know we're running toward the end. I, I want to take a quick minute and talk about um, marital agreements. So you've all heard the term prenuptial agreement and um, less common but critically important is a postnuptial agreement. 95% of the couples that I work with who are married don't have prenuptial agreements because it wasn't a thing back in the day and they didn't have any money uh, that they were concerned about protecting. But even a happily married couple should do a postnuptial agreement. And I tell the story in the book, and it's true. Um, one day I, I'm sitting in the kitchen and my husband asks, you know, uh, where's the light bulb? Where do we keep the light bulbs? And I thought, oh God, we're living here 10 years and you don't know where the light bulbs are. And it really dawned on me that uh, some of you have met him, he's the nicest guy in the world, but he is helpless and clueless. And I believe he would be remarried within four years of my death, no doubt about it. And he's the nicest guy in America and he's gonna give this new person the shirt off of his back, as well as all of my kids stuff. This is you know, uh, the peculiar result of what I do for a living. I think in these terms, because it happens. So our wills say everything goes to each other and then many years from now it goes to our kids. But if I die first and he gets all of the assets, there was nothing in there to prevent him from giving it all to a go-go dancer. And even if he <laughs> says, even if he says he's not going to, he could develop a little cognitive impairment and she's gonna be working on him from day one. So I'm thinking of the picture of Anna Nicole Smith in the courtroom uh, with the picture of the 90 year old uh, dead husband. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I thought of, and we were our first clients, we have a postnuptial agreement that simply says the following. We each promise that the survivor the surviving spouse legally promises to enter into a prenup with a future spouse. Okay, that's simple enough. So now he doesn't have to have a backbone. He simply says, you know, old dead Anne made me sign this document. So, so we have to do this prenuptial agreement. And it's a very simple little thing that insulates and protects 
the integrity of the estate plan. It's one more thing that we can do to prevent assets from going to outsiders. And, you know, all of these things, we're looking to protect the assets from long-term care claims. We wanna protect them from estate taxes, from capital gains taxes, from being lost to um, a relationship that goes sour, and garden variety lawsuits. We're becoming a, a more and more a litigious society. And if you think your umbrella policy is gonna cover you when someone falls down your front stoop, um, good luck getting replacement umbrella insurance and good luck getting them to pay the claim. That's why it's somewhat affordable. So in addition to the insurance, we need good protective planning structures. Right. I, I think my my wife is laughing in the background. <laughs> uh, my, my second wife, I should add. But uh, we're, we're on great terms and uh, that's it. I'm done. You know, okay. um, <laughs> over and out. <laughs> you, you, before we uh, uh, close up and uh, see if anybody has a question, I just want to point out that uh, people will go to you because you're the expert. People go to uh, perhaps a certain doctor because they have something that's ailing that they would be the best to go to, like a cardiologist or so forth, uh, ENT person. Uh, I you brought up that that thing about the attorney that dabbled a little bit in the estate uh, section, and he put up his shingle saying, "Okay, now I'm an old attorney," and you know, again, that's that's not a good thing. And uh, ethically, well, it's another uh, uh, thing. But I always recommend, I always strongly recommend going to the expert. All right, so someone who has that experience in that particular field. Uh, yourself, for instance, in the state uh, planning and uh, law uh, uh, fields, trusts and all. Um, and almost like what I do as a senior real estate specialist, you can hire any any realtor, okay? I could sell first time uh, home buyers, I can uh, represent buyers, uh, whatever, I could uh, do luxury reels. But again, if you're looking to downsize and relocate, you may want to at least discuss with a senior real estate specialist uh, what it is that they do and how they could be of help to you. Uh, and uh, so, you know, that's, that's another thing. So I do know that for sure that uh, uh, I always recommend the right professional uh, going in, whether it's a senior move manager or somebody who could universally design their home so they could stay in place a little bit longer and so on and so on. Uh, I do have your contact information on a slide. I can put that up. If anybody had a quick question. Uh, uh, but Jeff, before, before you go to that, I, I just want to um, echo the theme that you brought out. And I think, you know, um, perhaps it's most important dealing with a realtor that uh, they be a, a specialist like you because uh, so many unscrupulous folks out there. And yes. I think, you know, with your designation, that's, you know, a, a, an imprimatur of legitimacy that, that you took the time um, to seek counsel from Roseanne and to uh, become educated because you wanted to do the best job possible 
you know, for the seniors and the families that you represent. And I think, you know, uh, there are a lot of cowboys out there in all of our respective uh, professions. And uh, it goes back to curating a team of folks that, you know, you have the right people to call for the right answers uh, when you need them. And I, I personally think the world of you and in many, many, many years and, you know, we all hear things uh, about each other uh, in this small uh, senior advice world. Uh, people only have the best experiences having dealt with you uh, and the best feelings and you take care of folks and it's always, you know, with a, a clear head that I highly recommend that folks reach out to you. So, um, you know, I think you putting this together today uh, you could be out playing golf or, or doing something. You're doing this to uh, get good information out there. And I personally uh, take my hat off to you, Jeff. So thank you for putting today together. Thank you, Ann. Uh, Gary, I think you had a hand raised. Um, yes, Jeff, I wanna say, you know, that the equivalent of not using an estate uh, attorney would be the equivalent of you uh, selling a home, uh, having a buyer and the seller wants to be represented by their patent attorney. You know, so it's, and I've always maintained my whole life, my brother-in-law's an ENT. And I've always said, if my foot hurts, I don't go to my brother-in-law. So, you know, I go to a podiatrist. So uh, specialist, I think that's the, the theme here. You have to use the right people for the right job. But uh, Anne Margaret, I have a question. If during the life of the trust, the, um, the individual becomes cognitive, impaired. Does the decision making revert to the trustee? Yeah, so um, the trustee really has very little to do. It's more like the person taking over for the grantor uh, via power of attorney. So the relationship is still the same. Uh, the trustee still cannot sell the property without the consent of the parent. But now the parent, because of the cognitive impairment, is represented by um, their agent under the power of attorney. Does that make sense? And, and sometimes yeah. it's going to be the same person. Oh, yes. Uh, Okay, and it is what it is, right? If um, you're my trustee and I lose capacity, now you're effectively making the decisions. Thank you. Okay, uh, does Roseanne? anyone, oh. I'm sorry, does someone else have a, a question? Yeah, I, do. I do, may okay. I? Okay. Yeah, so Mark, can you differentiate for us you know, c capacity, competency, because see, as real estate professionals, we often walk into that home of the seller and we say, hmm, and then we don't know what to do next. And usually we try to contact, we ask them who their attorney is because that would be important question when you're doing a real estate transaction, we might reach out to that person. But what is all this, in, you know, incapacity versus competency versus, I don't know. Uh, it, it, 
what it is is another two hours, but the you know the thumbnail sketch of it. Um, my husband's a geriatrician, and he deals you know with the medical side of it. You know, um, Alzheimer's and related uh, dementia illnesses. But what's interesting from a legal perspective is that a medical diagnosis it could be stage three alzheimer's a medical diagnosis does mm. not necessarily mean that we are legally incapacitated okay mm. so you know often i have gray issues and i have a lot of folks being led into uh, this office by their adult children you know to my conference table and we're here for mom to put the house in my name okay you know uh, uh, okay good sir will you wait in my um lobby while i talk to your parent about this mm -hmm. and you know sometimes it's a gray issue mm -hmm. they don't have to be able to recite the gettysburg address to know that they want their three kids to get the assets but if she starts coming into me every other year with a change in favor of whichever child she saw last, th then we're at a place where we really don't want to be, and that is a guardianship proceeding. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So I, I just think it's important for all of us uh, in this business to remember that legal incapacity can only be determined by a court process. Mm -hmm. And if a person has a general appreciation for who their loved ones are and what they have, uh, that has been upheld to be sufficient legal capacity to do their estate planning. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, I asked that especially because in the SRES course, because you know I didn't write it, I just facilitate the course, for the National Association. In fact, I'm teaching it tomorrow for the next three days. Um, I, they're telling us in this course material that if you, as a real estate professional, if you sense the person and like, how do you know that? Like as if we're, you know, social engineers. I mean, so if you have a sense, then you should be sure to ask them if they have, have a power of attorney. And I don't know, I just wonder if that's being a little bit intrusive and that's not my wheelhouse, you know? Uh, right, I mean, I. I would say at the very least, it's a little bit of an awkward yeah. Uh, situation. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I just push the material forward, but I, I just have questions about that. You know, I. Well, um, the other piece of it is sometimes someone being a little fuzzy surrounded by loved ones is different from someone being a little fuzzy with you know a, a a guy or gal with them who's a, a shady operator potentially and um all of us have the ability to put an anonymous call in to adult protective services who who would send a social worker to check out the situation and i would imagine in the course materials that you're referring to you know they're giving you uh, protective ammunition to save you from liability down the road 
Like, what do you mean you let her list the house for X hundred thousand dollars? She was diagnosed with ABC the prior year. So. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's for risk shifting probably to, you know, yeah, makes sense. And one other question, I know you're, you were talking about the, uh, trying to avoid probate. Could, could you give me a good explanation of why, what is probate and why would somebody want to avoid it? Yeah, so uh, I'm looking to my left I, I, for a copy of a will. We all know what a will looks like. Uh, I leave all of my assets to Roseanne, end of story. I sign it to witnesses. Um, it comes as a surprise to people that the will is not automatically effective. If I name, if I name you as the beneficiary on my CD, that's automatically effective. You go to the bank with my death certificate, you walk out with a check. Uh, but in order, if you have an asset that hits a dead end without a beneficiary, and that's usually the real estate, now the named executor has to take that document together with a death certificate, have an attorney do what's called a probate petition, give notice to all of the people who would be my heirs at law. So I don't have to leave my kids anything, but they do have to be involved by getting served process in the event that the will is probated. So it's an archaic process that goes back to Henry VIII in the 1500s, and very, very little has changed about the process to this day. And while it's historically interesting for a geek such as myself, it's a big pain in the you-know-what for folks who have to go through the process. And that's never changed. St people still have to authenticate the will. So some yes. like foreign person you never heard of four, you know, four ancestors ago can show up and say, hey, I'm related or... Absolutely, absolutely. And it's very important for those of us who don't have children and don't have a spouse. We want to avoid probate like the plague because the court will appoint some, something called a guardian ad litem. And for an attorney, that's like a Scooby snack because when the court appoints a guardian ad litem, someone's getting a payday. So they appoint their retired friend, you know, they made a deal on the golf course. He says, hey, I'm going to hook you up with a guardian ad litem. Uh, his eyes light up because what this guy or gal has to do is pretend to look for long lost relatives and put a, a family tree together, maybe hire a genealogist. And wow. the, the expenses can easily get to $10,000 before you know it until the court says, okay, I guess there are no uh, next of kin. And if they do find next of kin, then that person is fighting with, you know, you who I wanted the assets to go to. Right, right. Yeah. Huh. Wow, Proper planning is the key thing in all, in all uh, things that uh, a trust, uh, a uh, healthcare proxy and a living will, and Jeff, you'll you'll let me just uh, in 15 seconds plug my book, Love and Money. Oh, you beat um, me to it. Protecting your yourself from angry exes, wacky relatives, con oh, artists. I want to take your picture. Tell, hold it up again. 
I'll, I'll, I'll send you a, a copy of it. Um, Dr. Phil wrote the forward to it and it's um, entertaining, but unfortunately uh, the entertainment comes at the expense of real life people whose names have been changed. Um, cautionary <clears throat> tales. Yeah, something, huh? Well, I do want to thank uh, you and Margaret for coming onto the show, uh, Downsizing you. Relocation for Boomers and Seniors. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Good seeing you thank again. You. Last time I saw you was in Syosset speaking at the library. Yes. Uh, yeah. Awesome, awesome presentation. And it was thank a packed you. audience, which is good to see. So, you know, don't think about what it's going to cost you. Think about what it may cost you if you don't uh, hire the expert. You know, and that's the whole thing. Planning ahead is key. Thanks for having me. Bye, everyone. Okay. So long, folks. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.